Mistakes from our collective past are like any other. They require intervention, a remedy, to correct. They don't erase themselves over time. Author Jonathan R. Miller. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. We've got work to do, y'all. In this season that we're in right now, as we continue to check in with what's happening in community, one thing is clear that over and over again, we're refacing and revisiting mistakes that we've already made. Whether it's revisiting the same conversations we had with vaccines from the past that have saved us, and now we seem to have completely different arguments for why not to do the same thing that happened before, or (laughs) the constant reckoning that we find ourselves in day to day over the things that have happened to us, especially in the season right now where we are contending with yet another group of refugees coming to the United States for which we have to re-examine again for ourselves who we will be as a nation. Again, I love that quote from Jonathan R. Miller, that mistakes from our collective past are like any other. They require intervention, a remedy to correct. As we continue to think about the impact of our decisions and the constant conversations that we have, I'm finding myself as we connect Miss Georgia this week, um, this thing front and center on my mind, what are we doing to correct the things that need addressing in our own society? What have you been encountering this week, Miss Georgia? Absolutely, Anthony. I have been working a lot on uh, what's happening here in St. Paul and Minneapolis over the last week um, before heading off to D.C. Um, As you guys know, the big march on Washington is happening. It is the annual commemoration of MLK's I Have a Dream speech. And this year, they're focusing on uh, voting rights. We've seen the attack against Black votes uh, just, I mean, reach a a total new height. And so um, thousands will gather on uh, Capitol ground to advocate for equal equal voting rights, something I didn't think we would have to tackle in our lifetime. But last year, the focus there for that march was police accountability. And there's a part of me that feels torn because I do know— that voter suppression is real. But at the same time, we never, it doesn't feel like, you know, we ever really got the level of police accountability that we advocated for last year, that we advocated for here in this community. So that that has been on my mind. Um, but the um, other thing I've, I feel like that cannot be ignored by any of us is the the state of our environment, you know, thousands gathered at the Capitol to uh, take a stand against Line Three, and uh, we've we've been following this over the last uh, few years. It's been going on, and um, the governor, the lieutenant governor, have not put any measures in place to prevent Line Three from happening. Meanwhile, there are fires. The Boundary Waters is closed for the the first time ever because of the fires that are happening there. Uh, Dixie is is a huge wildfire that's happening in, in California. And so the world is literally burning around us. 
yet and still, we're continuing to move forward uh, as though it's not, you know. And so uh, there, there's so many layers to what's happening in our community right now. And um, in, in many ways, it's connected. You know, uh, you 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 burning on on multiple fronts. That has continually and consistently been the theme of a lot of our conversations um, around the racial reckoning project. That there are multiple layers and multiple fights happening on different fronts. You know, as I think about the fact that Minneapolis voters will be determining the future of um, the city's public safety. Some of the reporting from the reporters of the Racial Reckoning Project um, brought that forward. I mean, the override of Mayor Jacob Fry's second veto of that bill um, is huge. Putting the ballot, uh, putting it on the ballot, uh, whether or not Minneapolis will choose a Department of Public Safety versus versus keeping what's already there. Um, You already mentioned the Line 3 protesters. Um, the juvenile sentencing in Minnesota is another story being covered by the Racial Reckoning Project. So again, to your point around fires on all fronts, we have all of these um, all of these battles that are happening at the same time that we're just trying to tell the truth <laughs> about what has happened and what is happening, not just here, but even across the world. Um, we got a history lesson on the Counter Stories podcast yesterday about the history of Afghanistan, of Afghanistan, and, and complicating and nuancing our involvement there that even led to what's what um, what we're experiencing right now. I'm curious as you encounter these multiple stories and these multiple fronts, what pulse you're getting from community about their energy level for all of these fights. So the the folks who I have been talking to are at they're at different places. They're at different places in the fights and in, in the movements for for justice. Um, and people have different expectations on what the solutions are and who's responsible to bring them forward. But at, at the end of the day, you know, when you look at capitalism, you know, I feel like the piece with line three is is directly tied to capitalism. And you have this huge corporate force that is using all of its resources to get the political buy-in to, despite the harm that that it's causing, despite uh, the treaties that is it's breaking, you know, all of these different things. When you look at police accountability, you know, that is a, a fight that we just saw an officer on Wednesday in D.C., kill a man who was in his car. You know, so that is still something that is ongoing. And and what is the root of that? You know, racism. Uh, So there's these fights, even though they're connected and you're seeing solidarity in, in the movements where people are showing up in issues that maybe they don't feel like necessarily impact them directly, um, these fights are all at different places. Uh, but the the one thing that I do hear more and more and more of in that solidarity is that there is this uh, collective belief that, you know, there's one humanity. And so although some people feel removed, um, at the end of the day, we're neighbors, we're brothers, we're sisters. And so even if I'm not directly affected by an issue, if it affects you, then it should be affecting me too. And 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 that in right there brings up one of the challenges that we see. Um, and and it's and it's a marker of how Minnesota has historically addressed our um reckoning. It it is that proximity. 
sometimes it's required. We're supposed to have the wherewithal to be able to to reach out across an experience, even if we don't experience it directly, and be able to make some kind of connection. However, we seem to only be able to address that which affects us directly. I'll never forget walking across um, my alley and talking to a neighbor in casual conversation, and and them asking the question just like you know so have you do you know anybody who's who's gotten covid and i have to recount the story of the many people close and and distantly related who not only have suffered from covid but have died as a result of covid and my direct contact tact was re, was what he needed in order to go you know what i'm going to go get vaccinated if we never had that conversation he would have that would have stayed out of sight out of mind and I find this happening so many times, even in folks who I've known for a while, that we only are going, it's, it's when we have the conversation and we realize, oh, I'm actually directly connected to somebody who is connected to what's happening on the ground, whether it's the protest um, and, the, and the uprising that was happening, whether it's, it's, it's uh, the re- refugee work in Afghanistan. Uh, when Puerto Rico faced the storm and, and we notoriously had a president um, <laughs> tossing paper towels um, and all the rhetoric that was coming out of that uh, out of that moment uh, it, it took people being directly connected to somebody from Puerto Rico in order to go oh wait there's a humanitarian crisis we only seem to talk about Haiti when a big news story comes in there but we don't have those conversations outside this has been a problematic piece for us we're only really now having a conversation in the big public sense because native folks have been saying it forever and a day around boarding schools because of what happened at Kamloops in Canada when we in the United States have had 357 operating boarding schools um, and that's just of what's been accounted by the uh, National Boarding School Healing Center so um, in eight in what in Minnesota we had what 15 to 18 of them here in Minnesota um, of which almost all of our <laughs> Christian denominational groups are, are, are inculcated in running them and operating them under this federal policy. And again, that's all while it was still illegal up until the 70s to even practice indigenous religious practices in the United States under federal law. So we only seem to have the conversation when affected. And if that's the case, Miss Georgia, then we got a problem. We got a huge problem on our hands if it takes direct connection because so many of us have the privilege and the option to not ever be connected if we choose to. The way forward, I feel like because there are so many different complex issues and systems that we're fighting against, it is is going to require us to work together. That to, to me, I think that is, that's the part that gives me hope and, and, because we're so close to these issues, Anthony, I know you get this as much as I do. It's like, how do you keep hope? How do you stay positive when there's all of these different complex issues that are piling up against us? And how do you find hope when the world is burning around you? How do you find hope when people who look like you are being killed in cold blood in the street and getting away with it? And the hope is in in the collective. The hope is in the village coming together and knowing that we have everything that we need. Well, I mean, it's it's fitting that we have the guests that we have um, 
on the show today for that very question, because it's one that is front and center in my mind, and they are tasked with tackling this in a big way. Jim Bear Jacobs and Reverend Pamela Ngunjiri are the co-directors of racial justice at the Minnesota Council of Churches, um, and they've been doing some amazing work around truth-telling um, and, and reparations. And so uh, I want to um, bring them in and just get their reactions to what we've already been talking about um, this evening. So Brother Jim Bear and, and Sister Auntie, Reverend Dr. Pamela, <laughs> what's coming up for you as you listen to the conversation? It's good to be with you, Anthony and uh, Miss Georgia. Um, you know, as I, as I hear about uh, just sort of the, the recap of what's been happening in and around us this week that you all have covered. Um, I would say my hope lies in knowing that the work that we are seeing right now, the work towards justice, um, even though it may be centered around, for example, the, the line three protests is largely a native space, um, uh, it's led by some fabulous, incredible indigenous women, but there is so much, uh, cross pollination, if you will. There's so much intersection. Um, and we've been seeing that really for the last maybe five years here in the Twin Cities. Um, you know, so I, I, uh, I watched yesterday as, as hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of marchers came in to the Capitol grounds yesterday for the Line 3 protest. And, uh, you know, I saw, I saw black folks that I recognize, uh, Asian folks, Latinx folks, whole lot of white folks, native folks. And so there's this, this recognition that, um, if we're going to, you know, if we're going to call ourselves agents that are working towards justice, that it has to, it can no longer just be a, a, a self-focused, uh, endeavor that we have to, uh, you know, as, as a native man, it does me no good, uh, if I can advance my own causes of justice, but Anthony, you know, you and your family are still in danger, uh, you know, when, when you're out and about, um, and we've seen this, right. I mean, I think going back to, uh, was it 2014 when Jamar Clark was killed and the occupation of the, the, the precinct in North Minneapolis, I mean, every, and that, you know, that space was undoubtedly a black space, but every night, you know, whether I was there in person or even just, uh, streaming the, the events, you know, I would hear the native drum. I could hear it in the, in the back, in the background there. And every time I was there present, I could smell the, the, the sage burning, you know, some of our sacred medicines there to bring, to bring about comfort and healing. And so the, these intersections are so vitally important because this work can't be done in siloed communities any longer. I'm in total agreement with you. I was listening and um, you started out talking about your hope. And I think what has been um, what has been inspirational for me is 
the phenomenal occurrence of a unified front um, amongst people. And Jim Barry, you were naming that. Um, and it for me, it there seems to be a sense of a supernatural gathering of folks, a coming together of people across racial, social, economic, and faith lives for a common purpose to serve the betterment of humanity. And I, so I'm a baby boomer. I've been here a while, probably older than everyone on this, um, on this uh, broadcast. And I can't ever recall, I, I remember seeing that somewhat in the civil rights movement, but I was a little kid, but I remember seeing a little bit, but nothing to the degree that I think that we are experiencing it now. So um, I just, I, I, I think we're living in an amazing time um, at an amazing time um, that is pivotal to who we're going to be in the next 10, 15, 20, hundred years from now. You know, I received that wisdom. I, 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 um, it's, it, it's interesting to hear you put that into context for me. And it's, and it's something that I need regularly because, um, I often will have my eye and attention towards the fractures because that's where the work screams at us. And it's, and it's sometimes it's hard to step back and say, well, yes, but look around. And, you know, so I, I really appreciate being, you, you putting that into context, um, from what you've seen in, in your in your vantage point, I'm curious for your work around racial justice um, from the standpoint of the Minnesota Council of Churches. I mean, you're in a space of intersecting multiple denominations, multiple faith groups, all trying to build solidarity across those. And so, um, I'm I'm curious what that work has looked like for you in what's supposed to be our sacred mixing space. <laughs> And so what does that look like from indigenous to, 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 to Christian, to Muslim, to, to all of the different faith communities that come together? What does that look like from your end and your, in, in, as you push and fight for racial justice from that vantage point? So I, there's a, a word that I think people have used maybe with a specific meaning, but I think that there's more to that meaning, meaning and that word is shalom, and so oftentimes when people use the word shalom, they use it in terms of talking about peace. But if you go back and do some digging, you find out shalom means as God intended. And so as I'm thinking about this intersection, particularly here at MCC, of faiths and races and, 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 and just all kinds of things, it just looks to me as we're walking towards shalom, walking towards as God intended humanity to be. So that's that's my take on that. Yeah, and I'll I'll jump in here. You know, um, the this this word reconciliation or, or racial reconciliation. Um, you know, I mean that ro- that that word started coming into sort of our our cultural ethos. Uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. I mean, certainly it was before that. But I I think it's a word that the the people who use it the most don't understand what they're asking and really ought not be using that word. And so here at the Council of Churches, um, we don't use that word reconciliation very often. 
uh, our program that Miss Pam and I are co-directors of, we call it our Truth and Reparations program. Mm-hmm. Because reconciliation, uh, in order to reconcile, there has to be a pre-existing relationship mm-hmm. that was solid and harmonious. And that is what we are trying to get back to. And you know that Black folks and, and, and Native folks, in terms of their relationship with the dominant culture, there is no point in our, in our history that we would say, that's where we want to go back to. That's when things mm. were all right. Mm. And so we don't use that word reconciliation. Um, and so a lot of, you know, um, I mean, you know, let's, let's just be realistic, um, in terms of, the Christian community in Minnesota, we're dealing with a lot of predominantly white churches and historic white churches. And even when we talk about reparations, we will hear from churches uh, the work that they are doing, that they're endeavoring to do, uh, that they call reparations. And when they tell us about it, uh, you know, I just have to kind of look at it and chuckle a little bit and, and, uh, you know, I'll say, well, this is all, you know, it's good work, but you haven't consulted any native folks. You haven't consulted any black folks. So you can't really call this reparations because reparations in order for it to be effective needs to be defined from the oppressed communities. You can't have the oppressor defining what reparations are. Um, and so, uh, as we, as the council move forward and we begin, um, helping churches move to develop ministries of reparations within their communities, uh, you know, it's, it's gonna, we anticipate it's gonna be for some of our churches, it's gonna be this big awakening and there could be some tension because, you know, the work that they're doing, sure, it's good work, but, it would be what I would call charity mm-hmm. and reparations is not doing more charity better. Mm-hmm. Reparations is an undoing of the systemic imbalance of power. And so if you have a church that is just taking up special offering, you know, to, to, to help seed uh, programs for, for black youth or, you know, indigenous folks, uh, and, and it's housed in their charity model. I mean, that's not reparations because there's no release of any kind of systemic power. And so we at the council here, like we, we don't use that word reconciliation. Um, because there's just, uh, it, 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 you know, I mean, I don't use this lightly, but it's inappropriate to talk about reconciliation because there just is no point to, to wanting to, there, there's no point in history that we want to go back to, right? In some ways, reconciliation is just like a, a maybe a, a better, more liberal way of saying, you know, make America great again. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that is so, so powerful. And as a journalist, narrative is, you know, that that's the center of my work. And so I think it's so powerful to hear you uh, break down the language and and words are powerful. Um, to me, what, what this brings up for me is just, you know, the things that 
the last year and a half has revealed. I think that there's been so many opportunities to learn, um, not just individually, but collectively as well. And so I'm curious to know from you, um, from you both, what have been some of those defining moments over the last year in your work? As I imagine, it has changed some and, and it has been impacted by the things our community has experienced. What have been some of those defining moments um, for you over the last year and a half as our community has gone through this period of, of racial reckoning? Wow. Um, you know, so our, our truth and reparations program at the council was 100% a response to the killing of George Floyd and the, the months of, of racial unrest that, that we, you know, surrounded us in the Twin Cities. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I think about defining moments, um, you know, uh, brother Anthony, I think about when Dante Wright was killed in Brooklyn center and you and myself and many others were part of a response, uh, a call for clergy to be present and hold vigil and um the 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 space that we were able to hold and create as a sacred space for the family of of Dante Wright to come together um and remember him to honor his memory but also you know as, as you recall i mean we probably had what I, I don't know a couple of hundred people at least there at least yeah and I know you'll never forget this. I'll certainly never forget this. But when when uh, Reverend Dwayne Davis gave the benediction, and I remember because it was um, it was uh, just not long after Easter, mm-hmm. correct? That's correct. And and he he talked about how we were in Easter tide on the liturgical calendar, and Easter's about a resurrection, and he equated resurrection with an uprising mm-hmm. and this call to no longer be held in the chains that would kill us, but this uprising to, uh, you know, and he put it so beautifully, you know, he's not calling for people to cut up and act the fool and, and do all this, but he's calling us to get up, not cut up, but get up. <laughs> and it, you know, that, that was one of the defining moments. Uh, I, I know it's, and I know I know Reverend Dwayne very well, and I know you do too, Anthony. But I I mean that moment sits with me so beautifully because here we were in this moment. We had, you know, we were what three minutes away from curfew at about that point, and the call to get off the streets, and mm-hmm. all around us there was uh, police presence and everything. Yeah, and it just felt like this incredibly holy and sacred moment. Um, to, to come together in, in, in response to a crisis that was facing our community. You know, Miss Georgia, you, you were, you may not have put it together, but that was the day um, that bottles flew at you as you were covering um, Brooklyn Center and the vigil mm-hmm. and several, you were like in four places at once. And we were trying to track and see where you are and make sure you were okay. So I just think I think it's it's interesting that you bring that up, uh, uh, Brother Jim Bear, because 
um, all of us were in different places of battle stations yeah. that day, all in proximity to each other, not even knowing that we were. Right. Mm. Well, I always thank you guys for for keeping me covered because it definitely, um, man, there there were some some dangerous nights out there, and uh, I I personally feel blessed um, because I did get hit with a rubber bullet and. Um, walked away with just mild bruising. And I have other colleagues who, you know, there's one journalist who lost an eye covering a protest, you know. And so uh, the intersection of this work and the faith community is is so important, uh, whether people acknowledge it or not. I, I felt it. And so I, I appreciate both of you and the work that you're doing and, and keeping our community covered. It's I, um, Jim Beer. There were a couple things that you said when I was writing down my defining moments. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm, I got to sift through all this stuff in my mind pretty quick to come up with an answer. But then you, you said a couple of things that that helped me to be more succinct with my answer. So I've just been here at the Minnesota Council of Churches for three, almost four months. So I'm still getting my footing in what we're doing here. But we're talking about the last year, year and a half, what were defining moments. And so for me, as a person who always has a lot to say, um, a lot of opinions and stuff, I lost my voice. And that has never occurred to me. So I'm, I'm a mom, I'm a grandma, I got two great grandkids. So in this lifespan of mine, I've never lost my voice before. But the events that occurred over this last year and a half, I felt like I lost my voice. But here in this conversation, what I'm figuring out is what I lost was my old voice. Mm. And the events that have occurred, I believe, has forced each and every one of us to have to figure out who we really are. So I felt like I lost my old identity. But... The the events pushed me or catapulted me to figure out my new identity and come up with my new voice. And I think that that is what um, has occurred for us as a nation and as a people, figuring out our new voice and our new selves and, and where we move towards, uh, move forward. And then you talked about uh, Reverend Dr. Dwayne talking about getting up. And talking about this about resurrection, that's exactly what getting your new voice and your new identity is. Being resurrected from the oldness, the dead, the stuff that doesn't work anymore. Um, instead of lying down and, and, and letting things happen, but getting up and becoming active and part of what is going on and what needs to happen from this point forward. So I lost my old voice and gained my new voice my new identity, my, I gained the strength to get up. Uh, I and others and everyone else, I believe we, it's like we got a second chance. We got a, a second life, um, a born again type situation of being resurrect, resurrected from everything in the past to stand up to do this new work. And we had to. This new work requires a new voice and a new identity and a new knowing who we are. So that's what I gained. You know, 
it's funny that you bring that. That's not funny that you bring that up. It's, it makes sense that you bring that up, <laughs> just because um, you know you all. Um, and 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 I'll let you speak to it. But you all are embarking as one uh, a native man and a black woman, right? In working in partnership in leading um, this this area, which I think in and of itself is beautiful, and it speaks to something that we were speaking to earlier. The 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 as you talk about the hope and coming together across these lines, right? So there's there's this solidarity in, in your intersections, both in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of age, in terms of all the things intersections that we could check off here. But you all are undertaking the task um, uh, here in September of actually having launching events about telling the truth and being unapologetic in dealing with that from the context of, of faith community. And so uh, tell us a little bit about that because you're not just, <laughs> it's one thing to just tell the truth in general society, but you going, you going into the most sacred spaces where folks know that they're moral and right and just and saying, Hey, look at the reality of the situation. Like that's, that's, that's you, you playing with people's <laughs> sacred, sacred lives there. So tell us a little bit about that work because when you talk about having a new voice, I mean, that's a bold step. Yeah. So I'll say, you know, from the, from the context of, and just so your listeners are aware, both, both uh, Pam and I are, we're reverends, um, you know, serving churches, serving congregations. Uh, so, so we're insiders mm -hmm. to this conversation. And I would say, um, in some aspects, calling the churches to accountability is easier than calling the general public to accountability because we have the mandate of the gospel, which when you read it properly, demands of us to be people of repair and healing, hmm. you know? And so in a sense, you know, Reverend Pam and myself, we can come into a church with a prophetic voice. And if they're going to get all up and, 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 and get worked up about it, we just, all we got to do is say, look, these are the words of Jesus. Hmm. These, these, the, 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 the man, uh, that, that you are upholding as, as, as chief prophet, teacher, savior, you know, his very words from the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you're bringing your your gift to the altar, your offering to the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has a grievance against you, don't bring your gift to the altar. Leave. In other words, separate yourself from this divine presence. Go and make repair in that relationship. And only then... After you're about the work of repair, only then come back into the divine presence. And so uh, we've never, you know, I, I grew up in church, Anthony, I grew up in church my whole life. I've never read that scripture from that perspective, that if I am going to call myself a child of God, a follower of Christ, Christ demands of me to make right my relationships with my brothers and sisters that have grievance against us. And, you, you know, it's no secret to, to, to everyone here that for people of color, particularly for indigenous people and African-American people, we have grievances against the white church as it is, as it is practiced throughout, you know, throughout our, our state and throughout our country. We have a grievance 
we have a justifiable grievance. And so if you, you know, XYZ Church, are going to call yourself a worshiping community, you have to. The gospel demands of you to be about the work of repair and restoration and fixing that relationship. And so in that sense, uh, it's almost easier in a church. Now, they don't like it and they will fight. They'll fight you, you know, and they'll <laughs> argue with you. And we have all sorts of theologians that will be like, well, you're reading that scripture out of context or whatever. And I'm just like, okay, we can visit other scriptures, you know. How did Zacchaeus make right his relationship with the divine? How did how did he ultimately approach Christ in relationship? He had to leave Christ, go and make restoration for all of the harms he caused in his community, and only then could he have a, res a restorative relationship with Christ. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's not easy work, but... Uh, we stand firmly on gospel principles that our churches say are their guiding principles. And so, uh, you know, we just come and, and uh, light the fire and hold their feet to it. I feel like there has been a little bit recently uh, of, you know, kind of pushback uh, on the role of the church where you have people in the community who are feeling like the church is not playing the role that it was intended to play. Uh, have you guys been hearing that at all on your end? And if so, what are your thoughts about that? I've heard that all my life. Hmm. And, 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 and I think it's legitimately so. I think it I, with good reason. I think we have more than enough evidence to say that that is true. That is true. Um, as Jim Bear was talking, I was thinking, okay, so what is the good news? And the good news is, is that even though we have this problem, this situation, we all, we also, also have the solution for it. And it's very succinctly said when in the scripture, and I'm not, I don't do word for word. That's not my gifting. So I'll give you the gist of it is, is when God said, how can you love me whom you've never seen? and not love your brother or sister whom you see every single day. It's just that simple. Making a conscious decision to not make it about us, but make it about the kingdom and the relationships, because that's what it's supposed to be about. So uh, all, all my life I've seen it, my experiences in churches as, as a female pastor, as I could tell some stories out of this world. So, yes, we have the racial stuff, but we have the gender stuff, too. And so, but you take all that and you put it together and that hurt and harm that has come from the church. Yes, it's correct. But guess what? There's a solution to it. And so that's where I'm landing. I, and I think we're landing. We're going to be part of the solution. It's not that it's unfixable. It's very fixable. Is it easy? I didn't say easy. I just said it was fixable. But and, and and necessary. So that's my answer. It's 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 just a powerful. It, it's so powerful, and it's something that crosses many different faith communities and faith walks. Similar, um, uh, similar sentiment uh, that that puts forward and, and and puts the focus on. As I borrow from you, let's the main thing be the main thing. Um, you, 
I got to see early on, and in full disclosure, I'm 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 in the process of going through ordination myself, and one of my my auntie auntie mentor leaders in, in a community, you you gave a sermon to a congregation, and I remember it because the youth came screaming out of there taking cliff notes from it. And you talked about the story um, where one of the disciples is, is is needs to get out the boat in the middle of the storm and is too scared to, right? Needs to step out and walk. And um, it, it's something that has stayed with me for a while because we, we get trepidation whenever we want to address some of the difficult things. And you just did something and you just said, yeah, you know what, to, to Ms. George's question, you're right. And we get so scared of saying, yeah, we did some messed up stuff or this past that we did or the things that we supported or were a part of were horrible. You know, we live in a nation uh, where right now more women will have experienced sexual violence in some way, shape and form than haven't. That is, is, is just appalling, right? And that's something that we live in and that whether you want to say it or not, I may be an upstanding person in support of all these things, but there are things that I have said and done that have contributed to that culture. And I need to be able to come to grips and come to terms with that. And just saying it, the sky's not falling, the world's not ending, my life isn't ending, but yet, and now we can get to the business of trying to repair some of that harm, some of the past things we said. And so what you just said is that open door. And I got to ask, as we, as we close up, one of the things that we always end with, because this show is about checking in with the folks who are doing work in community, um, is how you are being you in this moment. Given that we are in this space of reparation, repairing harm, telling the truth, facing the truth and dealing with it directly and not making up a reality that where that truth doesn't exist. We're not about that life. I'm curious how you are staying you, how you are being you in this moment, in this season. And we'll start with you as our guests and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But we always end with that question. How are you being you in this moment? You know, Anthony, um, you and I have walked together through various uh, spaces over the last 18 months. And where I have where I have found myself being freely and fully myself, you know, because as a pastor, as, as clergy, in moments of crisis response, there is a public witness, there's a public persona. It's almost like a garment that we put on in these spaces. And I don't want to say it's entirely performative, but um, we have been alongside each other in some of those spaces. And I still remember where we were in, in one of those spaces. And then the very next day, you and myself and a handful of other clergy of color who were also walking through some of those spaces, were on a zoom call the very next day. And we could just all see our shoulders were were slumped. There was just an exhaustion. There was just a tiredness. And it it was a physical exhaustion, yes, but it was a deep spiritual exhaustion. It was an exhaustion that says, when will we stop having to deal with this, right? And there was just a holy moment in that space as everyone recognized, okay, we just need to be here for each other. And I have found such deep relationship. Um, you know, I love, I love being out there in marches and protests and seeing you and, and, you know, we could name, we could list a dozen other people that, that we commonly see out there. And I love those moments. But what I love more is the moments when we're not marching and 
we just legitimately recognize that there is a deep abiding love, respect, and legitimate relationship that I am here to minister to you should you need, and you're here to minister to me should I need, and we carry each other. It's the bear each other's burdens, right, that we do that. And I think we, as Black and Indigenous people, uh, it's part of our upbringing. It's part of our um, what we've come to know, how it means to live in community. Because um, white, white folks use the word community, but you don't see it to the extent that you see it in black in black spaces and indigenous spaces. And so how I, how I am being me is I have as much as I would never want to relive the last 18 months and everything that we have witnessed and experienced the deepening of relationships that have come out, uh, in these last 18 months are invaluable to me. How am I being me? What I think I'll sum it up with uh, three words. What the last 18 months um, have uh, shown me is necessary in order to keep moving forward. And those three words are available, accessible, and willing. Available to do whatever is needed to be done to move this thing forward, to shift things, to, to, to help the, the new, uh, community that needs to happen, happen, making myself available in whatever capacity. I, um, for taking this job, I had plans to retire in two years. That was my plan. I was going to retire. I was trying to think of Jamaica first and maybe Costa Rica and some other things. That's, that was my plan. And then I found out about this job and I thought, if you take this job, you're not going to be retiring <laughs> in two years, sister, because there's work to be done. But that's okay because my spirit has shifted and it has become more important Instead of me doing what I want to do, do what needs to be done and to make myself available to be a part of what needs to happen. That's what my calling is. So it was stepping away from my myself and selfishness into who I'm being called to be. Being accessible then means making myself open and 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 so that people are comfortable um, talking with me or approaching me. Um, as we're on this journey walk to do what Jim Bear says, build these phenomenal relationships with people, because that's what it's all about. It's about us being in relationship with one another before we can even be in right relationship with God. And then the third one is willing. So so we know these things. We know a lot of things, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're willing to do the work that comes along with it. And I have my I have shifted and decided to be willing so I've decided to be available, accessible, and willing. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? In this moment, I feel like I, I'm switching gears uh, for so many weeks. When you ask me that, Anthony, it's been, you know, recharge, unplug, self-care. And uh, now I feel like the season is, is changing again. And so uh, heading to D.C., 
to uh, document what is what's happening there um, and and also continue changing the narrative. Um, at the end of the day, uh, there is work to be done, as as Sister Pamela said, and you know, you look at that we do, we do have to be willing. And so uh, I've, I've had a few weeks where I have unplugged and I've been able to self-care and recharge and replenish, and now it's time to get back to work. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to going to D.C. and um, connecting with people all across the country and hearing what is driving them and uh, hearing from some of our national leaders in, in their strategy to fight against voter suppression. Y'all some powerful people. I think for for me, being me right now in this moment is attending to the ear. Um, an ear for, for listening and understanding the nuance of a thing. And that's not just in terms of service to somebody's need to get something out their chest or to say something or to hear stories. That's important too. I think the attunement is coming from hearing the full truth of a thing. Um uh, I was able to spend a good portion of time today reaching out to a couple of friends um, who had been doing some care work out of South Africa for Afghanistan and catching up with them. We met when I was there in South Africa doing some study abroad um, and developed some really deep relationships when they told me that I wasn't black in their system. I was colored. Um, and so we had some hilarious back and forth arguments and jokes as I understood that racialized system. It's that borrowed from us, but it's different nonetheless. And as they began to, to tell stories, they began to piece together a much fuller picture of our involvement because we often forget our history in the full stories that we were right there when we saw, we watched the same news stories, but we don't seem to recall them when it comes time to put the whole thing in context. And so in doing so, in this moment right now, being me is listening, listening to the full stories, the nuance, the gritty complications in between and not seeking to resolve it and make it make sense, but letting the dissonance stand, letting it just ride and be in tension and being okay, uh, being okay with that because that's the place where we start learning. That's the place where we can establish patterns that keep us in front and center. So for me, that's how I'm being me right now is I'm looking for those spaces where there is no necessarily an answer out. And that in there lies a whole bunch of wisdom for me. So that's how I'm being me in this moment. I want to thank you all for for coming on and being courageous and in, in, in showing some of the work that you're doing, but also bearing witness from your perspective in this space. We always end our show with this quote that was brought to us by Miss Georgia by way of Miss by Dr. Joy Lewis. And so, Miss Georgia, I'll let you go ahead and get the last word and, and, and end us right. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is bearing witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the racial reckoning project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Mm-hmm.